This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Hi everyone, I'm Jane Tara and I'm chatting to authors and experts about their self-help, wellness and personal development books. If you're looking for ways to be happy, be well and be inspired, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Better Reading B. Esme Louise James is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne researching the development of the erotic genre from the 18th century onwards. You may know her from the wildly popular kinky history video series on social media, which explores the history of human sexuality, and the series Sextistics, which uses statistics to create a snapshot past and present of gender, sexuality and identity in Australia. Her new book, Kinky History, blows open our conversation about sexuality and gender. It's fresh, it's fun, and what I love about it, it's also really factual. Welcome, Esme. It's so exciting to have you here. Yeah, I'm just thrilled, actually, because I've been doing a deep dive into you and I'm super impressed and I love the book and I love your series. And on the way to work today, I actually fell in love with your mother. Fantastic. um, (laughs) As you should. (laughs) Because I was listening to a podcast where you were talking to her. Mm -hmm. Um, So your mother is Dr. Susan Johnson. I laughed out loud at some of the texts she would send you while you were doing this research together. <laughs> yes. So um, clearly the relationship with your mum and your upbringing allows for you to be so open about sex. But just tell me a little bit about your backstory and, and your journey to, to kinky history. Towards kinky history. Well, to be honest, it involves a lot of wine. Um, <laughs> that's all good stories do, to yes. be honest. And, um, and all questionable stories. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> But actually, you know, both of our journeys, uh, kinky history and sexistics, began over a bottle of wine. Kinky History as a TikTok series came about. I was um, at the start of my PhD and uh, this little thing called lockdown just began Mm. and I found myself suddenly away from academic conferences and my peers where I could bore them about facts I had discovered in the archives and little tidbits of information about the history of sex that wouldn't ever make my PhD but I found them really fun, interesting Mm. things. And in lockdown by myself, my best friends got bored of me messaging these tidbits to themselves. (laughs) Um, And so I decided that I would, uh, with wine courage, I was like, I'll post it on the internet and then they will have to listen to what I have to say because I know that they go on TikTok all the time. Long behold, 50,000 people also saw that video and it wasn't just uh, my small group of friends and we had the kind of humble beginnings of Mm. kinky history. And it was a very interesting, I guess, journey because when you work in academia for so long, you just... I kind of assume that so much of this, what is very Mm. niche, privileged knowledge is accessible. And Mm. what I realised when I started posting these fun facts on the internet was there actually wasn't this direct line of communication Mm. um, about conversations about the history of sex Mm. and gender and identity and these archives and these wonderful stories Mm. um, that was, it was missing from our conversation today. Mm. So that's really how that started. It just, I fell into what was genuinely a privilege to be able to be the one to kind of uh, make that knowledge accessible Mm. and you definitely do that and you also weave it together it's you know a lot of this knowledge in here 
perhaps was separated before, you know, and, and some of it's fun trivia that maybe <laughs> you knew some of it and some of it is, you know, information about sex or gender or whatever, but you've weaved it all together in this incredible way. Your voice is amazing. And I mean that as your writing and speaking mm-hmm. voice. And we were talking about it in the office before and talking about how you're actually a performance artist <laughs> as well, which is interesting when you're talking about that kind of bawdy history, yes. the sexual, you know. How did that all come about? Did that Was that just the is that you and that's the way you've just decided to deliver this information and yeah. weave the tapestry of sex? Well, again, you know, uh, so much for me just comes back to my family and my upbringing. Mm. Um, uh, I spent all of my early years in theatre and in performance. Okay, so there is a theatre and performance background. There okay, really great. is. And that yeah. was my entire, um, I guess, initial training. But a lot of it also comes from my brother. Um, my brother, uh, so he's nonverbal and he's high needs um, autism and epilepsy. Mm. And one of the ways that we always communicate in my house, like when I was growing up and little, was we communicated through song and gesture and Auslan. And that was the way that he could best understand and also how he engaged. Mm. So we spent all of my childhood, you know, making up silly songs and dances to communicate everything with one another. And I think that's, you know, how I ended up in theatre. But when it came to putting this information online Mm. and even with the book and the conversational tone of voice Mm. I think it's I have so much that I have to thank my brother for because he kind of taught me this way of communicating that's so I guess clear accessible but it's kind it's engaging it's It's engaging and it is high theatre it's performance and and, and it's um and you're very consistent with your delivery Mm. so it's very on brand you know it's great you know I loved it I loved it as a performance piece as well as just so interesting (laughs) really interesting so in the book you explore five kinks in depth there's sin pleasure queer, the kink kink, meaning bondage and things like that, and also the porn kink. Okay, so let's talk about the sin kink. Talk Mm. to me about how the idea of sin sort of shaped our sex lives. I think it was so important to start the book from this angle. Initially, this was going to be a conversation we brought in later, but as we started to talk about how would we trace our history of sex and the turning points in our history that changed things for us. And really, it all starts with a lot of Christian thinking, very Mm. early theological writings and the different ways that they started to negotiate sex. And so we go back to the writings of Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, and we look at these writings where we start to change what it means to have sex and get divorced. And Mm. St. Augustine uh, has this writing that we kick off the book with about the fact that it is as much of a sin as adultery to to enjoy sex. Mm. So if you find sex pleasurable, you're committing sin. And so he believes that husband and wife should descend in a state of melancholy into the bedroom and go about their unpleasurable task. Um, Writing that is quite funny. But we put this directly in conversation with, you know, the history of St. Augustine himself. And mm. I think this is something that's often left out of the conversation. It certainly is. I did not know about this. And, in fact, I, I'm, uh, I've am i got a book coming out next year and oh, I fantastic. had used his quote, there is no saint without a past, no sinner without a future. Mm-hmm, and Oscar mm-hmm. Wilde had sort of used a version of that quote mm-hmm. as well. But I didn't realise he said things like this because he was such a naughty boy. Yes, yes. (laughs) And, you know, um, 
we stage him as one of the biggest turning points in our thinking about sex. You know, he's writing against contraception and against pleasure in sex. Mm. However, he only has his conversion in his late 30s. Oh. And prior to that, he, he has this fantastic quote where he says, um, I will live now and... Uh, and I will ask for forgiveness later, basically, mm. was his philosophy. And by all uh, stakes and purposes, he was a bit of a libertine in his time, ruined, essentially, multiple women, young women. Yes, and I, he- I heard you talking to your mother about a 12-year-old child. Yes, child. Yes. Yeah, yeah, not women, yeah, yeah, children, who I think when we look at the history of sex and someone like that is heralded as like, a, oh, well, he was a great Christian thinker and we should all look up to him. Saint. And, Saint, that's it. <laughs> Um, But actually, he has very interesting uh, relationship with sex Mm. um, and controversial and problematic. And we leave these stories out of our general conversation. Mm -hmm. And there is so much more that we can learn because when we start looking at these people and we start putting them on this pedestal, we see them again as humans Mm -hmm. and how their time and culture has influenced their thinking. Mm -hmm. And we can't just look at the finished product. We have to look at the whole picture. Mm. And so Kinky History was really an effort in putting together all of those puzzle pieces again. So we start to see how um, cultural factors and social influences Mm. actually influence and change continuously our entire thinking of sex. Mm. And when when you have someone like that who teaches us about sin and Mm -hmm. it's still it's threaded into the fabric of how we view sex. Yes. You know, we get to reframe that. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do we really want a a man who uh, had committed, uh, I guess, these atrocities against girls to be the one that guides our ethical um, Mm. relationship towards sex? Or can we look at alternative ways and actually come in with a bit of a critical lens mm. towards these things because I'll tell you what those those uh, those women and girls were no longer in the history books and uh, I don't mm. think they went on to get to be saints and heralded for their thinking they ended up with child and dead mm. um, and when we discuss all of the different turning points throughout history we move from him and the way that he then influences later Christian thinkers and especially when it comes to relationships with our body mm. and his writings were always brought out um, as a way to say that you know any relationship with our body becomes dirty that means eating and finding pleasure in food becomes mm. dirty. Um, it means, you know, taking a really good shit and finding that pleasurable also becomes mm. dirty. Mm. Um, and then we see in this new age, I think we're coming into a, a, an age of like, you know, body positivity and embracing our bodies. We're almost seeing like a, um, a turning point again in our history where we're renegotiating that, that relationship again. Mm. And that changes our relationship to sex as well. Yes, absolutely. Do you think that the idea of sex still being sinful still shapes us or do you you think it's shifting with the younger generation? I think it shapes all of us in very unexpected ways. Mm. Um, You can't I guess, move away from hundreds upon hundreds of years of thinking that Mm. has shaped society. And again, you know, I think what we really tried to do with the book is just to really highlight the ways in which these little bits of thinking still hang over our bodies Mm. um, and are behaviors every single day like someone like my mum who now you know uh has worked on me with sex statistics and we work on this book together and we speak openly about sex and you know we have these conversations about our body and different ways that we can kind of ethically negotiate relationships but you know she was uh went to a convent school Mm. and she had a very catholic upbringing and so this wasn't always her way of thinking and it's been a case of unlearning so many factors of guilt 
that she just had ingrained into her throughout of her, her life. And that's why I think this sin kink was so important for us because in our conversation, in our relationship, uh, directly as mum and daughter, this conversation of sin, goodness, virtue, mm. vice was always so prevalent to the conversation. Mm. Mm. Particularly for women. Particularly for women. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you can ask nearly any single woman that you meet and in some way this Madonna whore complex mm. has influenced her life and her choices and this stress on purity, you know, mm. Um and even now, I think you can be the most empowered, confident, I speak about sex all the time person, and there'll be moments where that little thing in the back of your head's like, have, yes. have I done something wrong? Am I dirty for this? Yes. And not dirty in the good way. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I was very careful when I was raising my sons, 24 and 19 now, mm-hmm who, when they were little, I would just call their penis a penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you've got an elbow, you've got a knee, you've got a, you know, Mm -hmm. wash your feet, wash your penis. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I didn't sort of create any little weird words for Mm -hmm. it because I was very aware that we do that and we then sort of try to sort of hide our body or there's shame attached to our bodies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, wow. Okay, uh, you, you and your mother, I'm just like... I need to have wine at some stage, definitely. I think someone but, described us as the Gilmore Girls of, of sex once, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> Do you think it's like the the whole Christian? Um, in your research, you mm. found that it's it is the Christian world mainly. I I married a Japanese guy, and mm-hmm. I can remember years ago I was at his parents' place, and his Japanese mother was talking about how it was the fortieth wedding anniversary with her and her husband coming up. And she looked at me just as my face did the maths on that because right. I knew that my husband was the firstborn. Yep. And I went, oh, and she smiled and she said, well, we don't have the same hang-ups about sex before marriage that you have. Yes. Wow. You Isn't know, and I was like... Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, so she got married when she was pregnant yep, with yep. him. And I, you know, but she called that when she was an academic, actually. But she called that. So um, do you think it's kind of very Christian centric? Yes. It's interesting because, so. Um, ironically, uh, before I moved into the history of sex professionally, I was I came to university to study the history of religion. Mm. That was my um, my initial pull and what I studied for a very long time. So unsurprisingly, uh, religion and sex not that far removed. Um, there was a lot of crossover, mm. and uh, that Venn diagram is uh, not so much a Venn diagram as just one circle in a lot mm. of ways. But When uh, I was studying the history of religion, and this was uh, going across a kind of broad ranges of religion, uh, you really discover that a lot of the decisions and, um, I guess, teachings come down to a lot of political and social control. Mm. So I'm going to come back to St. Augustine, who can preach all of this and be heralded as like the the, the person to look to about your Mm. behaviours and what to do, and at the same time doesn't need to practice what he preaches, Mm. because in so many cases, religion, it becomes something that's no longer spiritual. It's about telling people what to do and how to do it. It's about power. And, you know, so I think when we go across different religions, um, in many ways, a lot of them have very different perceptions of sex, but 
it depends on where you're hearing this from when you have a religion that's uh, just too big and is giving lessons about political and social control, you know, trying to stop out of marriage um, children, uh, out of wedlock children, or trying to, you know, do population control. And it's not necessarily about the spiritual lessons. Mm. And so I think it's, you know, one of those that you always have to come back to the original teachings. Mm. And there's always so much more. There's more to the story. There's always so much more Mm. to the story. I've actually been coming back to some original Christian teachings because I want to see it from a spiritual perspective. Yes. So in this, uh, early on, you talk about dating apps and how the ways that love and relationships are changing and Mm -hmm. you met your partner on a dating app. You mentioned Hinge (laughs) and I I actually have some experience with Hinge. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I met my current partner on Hinge a couple of years ago. So I love that you actually write in here, if I can just find the page, that it's, you you know, we we still believe in that romantic ideal of running mm-hmm. into someone and that, you know, it's, what do they call it in Hollywood? The cute meat or the oh, meat, yeah. meat cute? The meat cute, meat that's cute. it. And I was really, uh, for five years, I was like, I am just going to run into him. But, of course, that didn't happen. And the reality mm. of today is that dating apps and things are the way to kind of mm. meet people, cut to the t- chase yeah. really quickly. Online dating has been around for long enough now. Mm. Do you feel that it has changed our the the landscape of relationships? Massively so. Mm. Um, I think one of the most important ways in which it's changed is this sense of control. A lot of you know, prior to this, when you are relying on running into someone or meeting them in public or someone you've grown up with, we have this locality when it comes to relationships. Mm. And you know, I think one of the reasons that going to like something like my grandparents' generation that people will stay together for a really long time. They may have not been the best fit, but mm. it's the convenience and the locality. Whereas now with dating apps, I would never have met my partner. Mm. Our worlds are so different from one mm, another. Same. There is just nothing that crosses over, but we are such a good fit for one another. Mm. And if it hadn't been for that access of the internet and being able to explore people completely out of my circle mm. and just someone who you know caught my interest... Mm. You know, I mean, I kind of dread to think now, but I think that's one of the biggest ways that it's now going and will continue to influence our relationships because we're probably going to see a lot of more successful relationships because we become picky. We are looking Mm. for someone who's a genuine match for us Mm. rather than, well, you know, he was my high school sweetheart and I haven't found anyone else who catches my attention, you know? (laughs) So I think that's one of the biggest ways. But also, as you say, this sense of you can tell someone what you want. Mm. Are you after just a bit of a a casual fling for a few Mm. months or are you after a long-term relationship? That conversation would not have happened. No, if you meet in a bar. No. Absolutely not. Can and, you imagine? And, and the whole range of it too because I was on there to meet someone yeah. and have a serious relationship and so was he and so were a lot of people who I, you know, had coffee with or conversations with. Mm-hmm. You know, but when I first got on the app and, you know, a bit of a Luddite here with these things, <laughs> first time ever on a dating app and I kind of, I was out of my comfort zone and but, you know, put it all in, 
you know, put some great photos in, whatever, yeah. left it overnight, got up. I had over a hundred. Oh, look at you. hundred, <laughs> but wait, a hundred messages <gasps> from young guys in their 20s. Oh. Now, I didn't know that you have to put on a um, age filter oh, on these okay. of where you, you know, and so I got my son who is in his 20s yeah. to do that filter. But a girlfriend of mine was going, yeah, this is a thing. Yeah. This yeah. is a thing. Not a thing I knew about, but apparently young guys, and they're not looking for a relationship, no. but they're looking for MILF. that experience. <laughs> yeah, the MILF. They're looking for that experience. So, you know, bizarre. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. But isn't that so wonderful? You know, obviously very strange as well, but <laughs> it's so wonderful that in many ways the dating apps have given us access to go and find what we're looking Absolutely. for. Absolutely. And, you know, if there was, I mean, if you had intentionally put in 20-year-old yes. and you were looking for a younger man and he oh, was looking I would for have an older woman. in heaven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it allows us ease of access. Yeah. Obviously, this isn't to say that dating apps aren't without their mm. dangers, but I think as I kind of write about in the book, these were always dangers that were inherent in d- mm. the dating and romance scene anyway. And mm. I think, if anything, it's just highlighted some of the issues that were already there and maybe given us different ways to help fix that mm. you know when my mum started getting on the uh, the apps herself um, <laughs> and you know uh, our last time she dated she would have been 16 and then suddenly she's in this brand new world oh of yes online I, it's a Different world. It yeah, is. And different experience to be an older woman going out there and having these, yeah. you know, dates and, yeah. It's very strange and it's yeah. a new form of communication mm. as well. You have to almost, like, learn different mm. lingo on dating apps mm. and how to communicate and how to build a profile and mm. all of this. You know, it's so important and integral. I actually sent most of mum's messages for her, so her p- current partner probably has uh, me to thank for their relationship <laughs> in the That's end. right. But... You know, I think it's just even for her, when you are going back into the dating scene, maybe out of a long term relationship, it gives you a new sense of, I guess, security. So she wasn't going and meeting strangers and uh, worrying about Mm. who she was going to meet. You know, we would have a text message system in Mm. place that um, I would generally be at the cafe next door. And there was like different safety systems that Mm. I think dating apps have encouraged us to use in every other form in the real world Mm. as well. Mm. I certainly had that with um, my, yeah, my bestie gave me a a can of spray paint that I had in my bag. (laughs) (laughs) Off I went for my first date in 25 years, you know. Fantastic. (laughs) So is sex on the decline? (laughs) (laughs) I think that was one of the most ironic um, sentences I had to write in the book, uh, a book, you know, about sex. And it was a really incredible statistic that 
mum stumbled upon. And I couldn't believe it when she handed it to me because I think in the media, Murdoch media, we have this perception of the world is sex mad. All we're doing Mm. is talking about sex and uh, kids today, they're all gay and having sex. Um, And actually, you know, what the statistics show is, especially for the younger generation, We are not practicing sex with partners anywhere near as much. Gen Z are not having um, sex as young as um, you know my generation would have. Mm. They aren't experimenting with each other mm. like we used to. And I think this actually comes down to the fact that, yes, we're talking about sex more. And so it takes away the mystery. Yes. People don't need to go and discover this in dangerous, maybe unconsented or unignorant situations. Mm. Mm. Um, because do you know what? They can watch sex education on Netflix mm. and they can learn all about, you know, the various activities that mm. people maybe want to do with one another. And rather than trying before you buy, they're hearing it and they're like, maybe not. Mm. And, you know, while we say sex is on the decline for the younger generation uh, in partnered activities, things like sex toy sales and uh, self-pleasuring is yes. very much on the rise. For um, You said that during COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were all at home and bored. What can I say? Yeah, yeah look, there's only so much Netflix you can watch. So. <laughs> but this was incredible. There was, in the first three months of lockdown in Sydney, Melbourne and New Zealand, there was a staggering 180% rise in sex toy sales. Wow. And it, like, you know, only three months as well. It didn't take us very long to start getting bored. Yes. And it wasn't just sex toys, but it was bondage as well. People were experimenting with bondage and costumes. And uh, there's an online retailer called Love the Sales that said that Australia overall saw an 80% increase in bondage. That's bizarre. So so people are getting dressed up at home, maybe exploring it before yep. they take it out into the world. Yep. Or, or do they have... Uh, access to online communities where that can be expressed as well? Well, I think one of the best things um, about the fact that people were buying more Mm. uh, sex toys and everything is that normally these websites have some kind of education, or at least they should, the good ones, will have some education about how to use these toys properly or how to engage in maybe bondage um, safely. And something that really took off was online kink. Mm. And we speak about this in the Kink Kink, my favourite name for one Mm. of the chapters, this idea of virtual kink where people could go onto websites and basically have a... Uh, an online relationship with maybe like a dominatrix or something. Mm. And people were experimenting with this for the first time, uh, especially for single men. This became very popular, but then it started to take off for couples as well, trying it out. And you could kind of for the first time, I guess, experience over Zoom what it may be like to engage in play or role play mm. um, in a way that was also, again, it, I, it doesn't feel quite as, I suppose, vulnerable as if you were doing it in person. Mm. It can be very terrifying to say to your partner, hey, actually, I would really like to act out this Absolutely. Uh, doctor nurse fantasy, but mm. maybe if you could try it out online with someone Mm. first and you know you can shut your computer if you feel awkward you can also learn from a professional how to do this in a way that's very safe you know you're communicating what you Mm. want how you desire it um 
what you don't want to do. And then, then you can take that into the bedroom with your own partner. You know, um, a lot of people, you know, their relationships broke down in uh, during COVID. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the ones who became stronger, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. You know, they were exploring some areas that they never had time to before. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it was so interesting. We look at, in our pornography chapter, we looked at the ways that what we were searching on the internet changed during Mm. lockdown. And one of the biggest ones that was in the top 10 searches on like pornography sites was how-to categories. People were going on to basically Pornhub and looking up how to tie up my partner, Mm. how to role play with my partner, Mm. how to... And like, isn't it interesting that Mm. we're then using these sites now as a uh, form of education Mm. as well? And I just think that... In many ways, it's a very nice circle because obviously we, the conversation of pornography um, brings up so many problematic things that we need to discuss. Mm. But seeing that people are looking for uncensored education, I guess, speaks to this need it's to really discuss. It's really interesting. It absolutely is. I mean, I, I can remember um, my boys talking to me about porn when they were younger. And once again, just staying open about it, I was like... Look, you know, it's normal, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone's curious and ends up there at some stage. But try and have a relationship, a good relationship with a girl your own age first because it can lead to some very unrealistic expectations about what women like and absolutely so go there later not quite yet (laughs) (laughs) so look you cover some fabulous historical facts and of course you know we've talked about your flair for storytelling so some of them include you know the long history of the dildo (laughs) um that james joyce celebrated his wife's farts absolutely I love that one. Um, <laughs> Albert Einstein, his thoughts on marital relations mm. and that Mozart liked rimming and I will never be able to listen to his music <laughs> in the same way again. That's certainly, really, when you read these things, it's like, wow, okay. But it, it also brings a level of humanity yeah. to the genius. Absolutely. <laughs> if James Joyce can write the great modernist Bible and also celebrate the dirty, fat, girlish farts going pop, pop, pop out of his wife's bum to quote him. You know, why can't we also be a little bit freaky and go on to great things? Yeah, and not not take it all so seriously, like it needs to be separated. And also, and you do write this at some stage in the book, where... I think it was the bit about chastity belts Mm -hmm. where, you know, just remember that all throughout history, everyone loved a dirty joke. Yeah, always. Comedy and sex are almost as hand in hand as as religion Mm. and sex. And I think that's one of the things that we have lost the ability to do in recent times. We're starting to get it back. But sex and everything, it's funny. Yes. It's two little fleshy things rubbing up and getting sweaty. I know. It's hilarious, really, isn't it? You know, and our bodies are hilarious. It is. (laughs) Let's have some fun with it, (laughs) which you do, which is great. But um, going back to the chastity belts, now Mm. that I brought it up, I was fascinated by that. So it didn't actually even exist. No, no. This was basically the first meme. This Mm. was something that uh, took off as a cultural idea and then we just believed it. Um, So we call them medieval chastity belts. And in some museums, not many anymore, you can still find these medieval chastity Mm. belts and they look like torture devices. Mm. They're metal underwear under lock and key. Have you? Mm. They're terrifying. And we had this idea that 
in the medieval times to keep, you know, women pure, um, husbands or fathers would put them on uh, the woman to, you know, to keep her chastity safe and the husband was the only one who had the lock um, to undo her underwear. I love that we didn't even think logically how this would work. How does she pee? Mm. Um, But this was something that actually was only created for the first time in the 17th century and it was made as a joke. So they had, we had stories about medieval chastity belts in like a funny book of inventions Mm. from the medieval times. And in that book, we also have the invention of uh, fart-propelled vehicles. Yeah. Um, And uh, basically an invisibility quote, Mm. a a cloak rather, just kind of like Harry Potter. Mm. You know, our climate crisis may be solved if we'd had a farting vehicle from the very beginning. But uh, when it came to the 17th century, they were like, this joke is still really, really funny. Mm -hmm. And they were still going with it. And they would, um, you know, write advertisements and pamphlets that would be like, oh, you know, Marie Antoinette and everything you're going to the more of the 18th uh, was under lock and key, but she escaped and they made it into funny stories. And so they started to create them. Mm. As just like, uh, how funny would this be if they were actually invented in the medieval ages? And so in the 17th century, they made a few. They got spread to museums all over the world and we thought they really existed. Yeah, another, another, you know, sort of lie told to us. And and to perpetuate that whole Christian sin idea that, you know, we're sinning if we have sex. Yes. The, The female body is sinful. But one of the best parts about I guess this inside joke when it appeared in pamphlets in the 17th century is you would often see the woman sitting there in her chastity belt and the husband's there with his key and behind in the curtains you can actually see, you know, two of her lovers popping out with dual so uh, copies of the key. <laughs> and that used to be the kind of inside joke about it that the woman is actually, you know, having a grand old time um, yeah. and everyone's got a, a, a key for her lock. Um, you know, um, And I love the saucy humour of that. That's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? And and, you know, the man's made a full, full of, you know, really feminism yes. of the 17th century, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. I love all the historical facts in here. So going back to Mozart, good old Mozart, oh. you know, does what's your favourite sex story about a, a historical <laughs> figure? I mean, I feel like we have to mention Mozart now um, because... I think it's great that we play songs to make babies smart um, by Mozart, <laughs> but not like Mishimash. Um, That's so funny. <laughs> um, that one doesn't make the Spotify playlist very often, to be honest. Baby genius will Baby never genius. look the same, right? <laughs> but, you know, he. We, when we're talking about the humour of sex... Mozart was phenomenal about that. Mm. Uh, Lick me in marsh, lick me in the arse, and also lick me in the arse nice and clean, you know, just two of his fantastic compositions that he wrote. And they were designed to be sung in rounds with five of your friends around a piano. Huh. Um, and, you know, I think we've got it, the the lyrics in the book, which kind of go along the lines of like, lick me in the arse, lick me nice and clean, nice and clean, that's how I like it. And But you're meant to sing it around the, the, the piano with five of your friends having like a little joke about, the joys of arse licking and isn't that wonderful can you imagine that doing that today like oh yeah actually we're having a nice dinner party do you mind if uh, George and Betty just come around and we'll have a little sing song around the barbecue (laughs) but you know there was that humour about our bodies and Mm. it's not just you know he doesn't just he jokes about defecation as well Mm. as sexual play Um, but again it's this this humour with the body and uh, discussing things the body can do that's 
also kind of weirdly sexual and there was the ability to laugh about it and play songs about it. Do you it. think we take it too seriously now? Absolutely, mm. we do. Absolutely. And I think it comes to a lot of this position of either speaking openly about sex or very, very silently. Mm. Um, and, you know, in kind of speaking so silently and being like, we don't talk about it, these are dirty, dirty topics. Mm. You know, I come from a very British upbringing where you do not talk about these things. Mm. But in doing so, I think we have this odd it's an odd relationship with our body and you know you go through something like a period of time in hospital Mm. and all of a sudden this kind of uh, very I guess prudish relationship we have of like no one can see me naked all of this kind of stuff it gets stripped away when we become human again when you know we are disgusting things will happen to us oh yes like you know I can remember taking makeup a little makeup bag to hospital when I was having my son my first son I was going to you know sort of put some lipstick on oh, for some wait. photos after or something like that. You know, I forgot all about that when I'm sitting on a bedpan yelling yes. with 15 people walking in and out of the room, like Absolutely. howling like a demon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there is that time, and I think for so many uh, women, especially childbirth, is that moment where, mm. for you know, hopefully there hasn't been too many periods of time where you've had this uh, you know, stand in hospital before, but there's when you actually come back to your body and mm. in that moment of, I guess, really life and mm. death, it, you know, nothing, all of that seriousness goes away. Yes. And I think there's something we can learn from that mm. in our relationships now. Then this is to say we should go around, you know, squealing like banshees and defecating everywhere, but you know, <laughs> there is something we can learn about loosening up a little bit about these oh. conversations. And you are helping us do it. <laughs> Seriously, the book is Kinky History. It is just, it's such an interesting read. Esme Louise James, it has been a pleasure. Pun intended. Oh, thank you very much. This has been an absolute joy. You can come to my uh, dinner party anytime. I'd love to. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.